We are continuing our, tonight our series of studies based on the men of, uh, of, uh, that, that are found in the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know about you, I've been enjoying it already. We're only, this is our third uh, study as we're getting into this. We've, the first week we talked about Herod. And when we say we talked about Herod, we really talked about more than one man. It's the name of Herod that is really applied multiple times. And, and we, we talked about that name and all that it means and all that it represents. There were some powerful lessons in that. And then last week we talked about four fishermen. Anybody remember the four fishermen? That's right. Peter, also known as Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Well, today we're going to be talking about, and, and I've chosen a name that's a little bit unusual intentionally, we're going to be talking about the centurion, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> we're going to be talking about the centurion sooner. That's sooner, S-O-O-N-E-R, the centurion sooner. And I think God has some things to teach us through this man. So turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 5, and we're going to, you, you've heard of this man, you, you've read the story, I'm sure of that, but Romans, excuse me, well, you know, I always say Romans, I guess I taught for Romans for a very long time, and I guess now I still can't get out of that. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, when he, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, or, or, or you could say, some versions say beseeching him, or you could say praying to him. Verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And that underline that phrase in your Bible, the, the words, no one in Israel, or some versions I might say, not in Israel, or something like that. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. What a wonderful story, isn't it? Let me, let me start by asking you this question. Have you ever seen those pictures? And I haven't seen it for a long time, but I used to see them sometimes on placemats at restaurants or they were in little kids' activities books. But it, it, there would be a picture there. And then at the bottom, it would say, what's wrong with this picture? You know, those things. And then you would look at the picture closely and you would see various things like it might be, it might be like the garbage can has eyes or the, the tree would have a face where a knot is, is supposed to be, a knot hole would be. Or there might be feet on a bicycle instead of a wheel, that kind of thing. But, I, I, you know, I want you to, to take the eighth chapter of the book of Matthew, this passage here and beginning with verse 5, and I want you just to write underneath it these words, if you write in your Bible, just write this word, the, this, this question. What is wrong with this picture? Something is out of place here. The, the, the key is really in verse 10, where it says, no one in Israel, no one in Israel, not in Israel. This man's faith was not found in Israel. And and it, 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 it's, it is in geographical Israel, so it's, he's not, that's not what he's saying. 
It, it, it's happening in Capernaum, which is on the shore opposite of Tiberias, on the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee, depending on how you refer to it. it. It is in Israel. It is in Galilee. It's in a place where Jesus stayed. In fact, it's very near the doorway of Simon Peter's house. It's, it's just down the street from a Jewish synagogue, but it, it is not in Israel. It is in the life and experience of a Roman centurion. The problem with this story is that he's a Gentile. He's not only a Gentile, he's the most hated of all Gentiles because he's not even a, you know, an educated, smooth-talking Greek. He is a Roman. And not only is he a Roman and a Gentile, but he's also a Roman centurion. He's an officer in, the, in this hated army of this military occupation. Not only is he a Roman, a Gentile, a Roman, a centurion, and an officer in the occupation, but not only that, he is stationed in Capernaum, there in Galilee. And the Galileans despise the Romans. He could hardly have found a place outside of Jerusalem itself where there were Jews who more thoroughly and completely despised the Romans. And among all Romans, the military, and among all military, the centurions. This was to be, this it had to be, the most hated man in Capernaum. And yet Jesus praises him and he works an absolutely astonishing miracle only by, by the words of his mouth. What is the point of this story? There, there are many, but, uh, you know, but as I read this story and I, I read about this man and his faith and what, what took place here, and understanding who he was, I, there, there are many points that I think that you could pull out of this. But as I read the story, I thought about the, the old story out of history. And I know a lot of you will remember this. Uh, when, on the, you remember the Oklahoma land rush. Um, the, you'll remember when, remember when they opened up the Oklahoma Territory. They, they basically drew this lengthy line across the dirt. And then there, were, there was going to be... All of these vast acres opened up on a certain day and people lined up out there on horseback and on wagons and on mules and by foot, those who couldn't afford any kind of vehicle. And at the sound of a shot from a gun, there was this massive land rush as they rushed into the open expanse of the Oklahoma Territory, where as they did that, they could stake out by placing these stone stakes or these stone markers at each corner of a property and Whatever they could enclose with, with their stone markers, that land was theirs. However, when they did that that day, they rushed into the new territory to stake their claims. They found out that some people had sneaked in early and they had already staked their claims. Those people became known as Sooners. And they, they had gotten in sooner than they were supposed to. And that, that's the reason, if you didn't know, that's the reason the University of Oklahoma calls its football team and all, its mass, all the, the sports teams, they're called Sooners. Now, this centurion, the reason I thought of that is because this centurion has sort of sneaked in under the wire. I mean, this, this is wrong. This picture is wrong. It's, it's the wrong time. It's the wrong place. It's the wrong man. And you'll understand what I mean by that in a few minutes. But the, the story, in a way, is, it's just upside down. He is a centurion sooner. He ought not to be there and he ought not to be getting the blessing that he's getting. In this story, we see one of the great evidences, evidences of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that is, will the kingdom put up with sooners? 
Will the kingdom of God allow people to just come sort of busting in the side door? Is it possible for people to enter the kingdom of God with such poor timing as this Roman centurion? Well, evidently, yes. If you'll turn just a few chapters later on to, uh, to Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, there's a very complicated, unusual little passage of Scripture Honestly, you, you can start an entire denomination on your interpretation of this verse of Scripture. We don't want to do that, but I want to give you two different views of Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. Jesus is speaking and he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now, there is a way in which that means, and I believe this is the primary meaning of the passage, in which Jesus is saying that until the triumphant return of Christ as conquering Lord, that the kingdom of God and the citizenry of the kingdom uh, of God will be subject to violent people of the kingdoms of this world, that, that, that God's going to allow that to happen, uh, that, that people within the kingdom of God will suffer violence, but God will allow violence against the people of God until the triumphant return of Christ. Until that return and the glorious rapture of the church, there's going to be violence. There's, always, there's going to be tyrants and there's going to be kingdoms, kingdoms that are going to destroy the children of the kingdom. Now, I think that's the primary meaning of the passage. However, I also think that Jesus has this way about him that was just uniquely his, where he would say a word or a, or a saying or a phrase that meant one thing at one level, but it also had another meaning at another level. And I, th I think maybe he's doing that in this passage. Because I think Jesus is also talking about those persons who just come kicking and screaming into the kingdom. They, they overtake the kingdom almost by violence. They are, they are violent in their perseverance of the kingdom. They, they are unstoppable. They are irrepressible and unsinkable. You can't argue them out of it. You can't dissuade, dissuade them in any way. They are absolutely indistinguishable from the, that spirit of violence that kills, yet only they are not killing with it. They are busting into the kingdom and demanding their blessings. There, there, is, there is some way in which I, I think God says, I'm going to put up with those people because I love their passion. Some, sometimes I think God looks down at the great dull gray, dry-cleaned modern church with its passionlessness and its soullessness and its heartlessness, all sitting there in our pews with our bovine-like thousand-mile stare. And I think he looks down over the wall of heaven at us sometimes and he says, just do something, anything. I'll honor it, just act, do something. I really believe that sometimes God wants us to almost overwhelm him with our passion. You know, we, we wonder sometimes about the, the, these odd saints of God. Anybody ever known an odd saint of God? Uh, yeah, some of you, if you are not raising your hand, you might be that odd saint of God. But anyway, uh, but we sometimes wonder about these odd saints of God that just kind of seem to seem to sort of kick the doors off the hinges and come charging in, and yet they come out with their arms laden with blessings. And we look at them and we say, whoa, I didn't know you could do it like that. And God says, well, that's, that's really not the right way to do it. And we say, well, then why did you honor that? And, I, and God was saying, well, 
He was the only one that was doing anything. And I think that's kind of what we have here in the story of Matthew chapter 8. There, there, there's a way in which uh, the, the time is out of joint in this story. And, and let me explain more fully uh, what I mean by that. How does this Gentile have access to the deepest riches of the kingdom? The cross is not yet. The resurrection is not yet. The, the Bible has not yet been written in all of its fullness. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is not yet. Jesus has not yet even said to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in fact, up to this point, everything has taken place pretty much around the Sea of Galilee. There, are, there have been no great, huge miracles up to this point. Jesus has not raised anybody from the dead. It's, it's been a, a very narrow, little confined miracle ministry of this itinerant rabbi and a few men that are very uh, close to him as they follow him. There are some miracles, but nothing really resounding, nothing huge. It, it's almost a local event up to this point. And then this centurion comes rushing in, claiming access to the kingdom, and the door is not yet open. He's rushing in in prayer in the name of Jesus, and Jesus has not yet told anybody to pray in his name. He's rushing into the Father, claiming blessings through the Son, but the Son has not yet been recognized as the Son of God. He's rushing in and saying, Lord, I believe you can heal my, my, my servant, and you don't even have to lay your hand on him. By the power of your word, I know just you have authority. You can say this, and it'll be done. How can he possibly grasp these things? Everything is wrong in this story. The picture is wrong. I'm telling you, the garbage can has eyes, the tree has a face on it, and the bicycle has feet instead of wheels in this story. This guy is in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he's doing the wrong thing, and yet it comes out right. I wonder why, for, just for example, I wonder why it happens in, in Capernaum. There is, an, there is an insight here, and I just want to offer it to you. If you look at verse 14... The, uh, Matthew 8, we just read. Now, we read through verse 13, and that's the actual end of the story of this centurion sooner. However, if you look at the first few words of verse 14, I, I think you may gain an insight into what God is doing here. So look at it. He says, Matthew 8, 14, just the first few words. And when Jesus entered where? And when Jesus entered Peter's house. Well, stop right there. When Jesus entered Peter's house. So, Jesus is in the streets of Capernaum. Capernaum is just a small little town. It's in ruins now, uh, but, but we know what the town was like and the layout of the town. It, it was never a huge town. It was, it was really just a little fishing village. But there's a main street that makes a, as it goes along, it makes this little dog leg right in, in front of the, of the synagogue. And Simon's Peter house was just sort of, for lack of a better word, and I sort of like this word, it was sort of cattywampus from the, across the street from the, from the synagogue. And, and so this must have happened directly in the proximity between the Jewish synagogue and Simon Peter's house, just, just down the block there. So they go straight from this healing of the Roman centurion servant, right straight into the house of Peter. Now, think about this. Now, about three years later, Peter is asleep and he has a vision uh, of a sheet being lowered on, on a rooftop in Joppa. You remember that story in the book of Acts? 
the sheet is lowered and has all kinds of unclean animals on it. And, and uh, the voice says, God says to Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, Lord, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then the voice says, don't call in anything unclean that I've cleansed. Three times this vision comes, three times the Lord speaks, three times Peter responds. And then immediately Peter is summoned from Joppa to Caesarea where he is invited into the house of whom? Anybody remember? A Roman centurion. You know, I believe that sometimes God is doing these little internal secret works of instruction and teaching and revelation inside of us that sometimes we're not even aware that he's doing them. And we may not ever even realize fully uh, what, that he did them in us at all. We may never understand what they were all about. But I believe that there may be some way in which Peter... He's there standing in the doorway of his house, watching all these things that are going on, watching the master work this divine miracle for this Roman dog down the street, almost across the street from the synagogue. And Peter, I can just picture him standing there in the doorway with his arms crossed saying, oh, oh, that's, that's not wise. That, that's not wise. With, with all the people in this world that are sick and he's healing a Roman, I, that is just not wise. But it worked. The healing miracle worked. And he walked over to Peter. Jesus walked over to Peter and looked him straight in the eye and said, I believe I'll come to your house now, Peter. And Peter said, there's somebody that's sick in my house too. Happened to be his mother-in-law. This is great proof that, that scripture, in Scripture that Peter is a man of God. He's praying for his mother-in-law to be healed. So, no, I'm kidding. I have a great mother-in-law. But he goes straight from healing the servant. Actually, the Greek word used to describe him is actually a slave. He goes straight from healing this slave of a Roman to healing Peter's mother-in-law. Three years later, Peter is taken straight from a vision in a Jewish household in Joppa to the household of another Roman centurion in the Roman city of Caesarea, which, by the way, is named for Caesar. That's why it's Caesarea. Therefore, I think that there may be a sense in which the Holy Spirit was preparing the internal man of Peter for this event, even though Peter didn't even know what was going on. There's still more to this, though. What can we learn personally from this Roman centurion? I think the first thing is that we can learn some very valuable lessons about prayer from this Roman centurion. Look at verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. That word translated appealing means pleading or crying out or, or, or calling to him, asking. And I want to say this, persistence in prayer. You can write this down. This is one of the great things that the modern church needs to learn, especially in Pentecostal churches. And there are many churches that get this, but, but, but we need to make sure we understand this. Persistence in prayer is not the opposite of faith. Persistence in prayer is not the opposite of faith. Somewhere along the line in the modern Pentecostal movement, uh, many of us got the idea that if you ever once prayed in faith, that to ask again was the opposite of faith. Where did we get that? Everything in the New Testament tells us to pray and to keep on praying. 
And to keep on believing and asking until we have the answer. To keep on hammering at the door. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's what the story of the unjust judge and the desperate widow is all about. That's what the story about the man who... You remember the story of the man who rises in the middle of the night? He has some, some uh, friends come to visit him in the middle of the night. And he gets up and he goes and goes to his neighbor's house and starts knocking on the door and says, I have some guests. Uh, open your door and give me some bread so I can feed them. You know, and like, like anybody would, he's like, go get bread yourself. Don't, why are you here in the middle of the night? I don't want to give you, get up and give you bread. But the neighbor got up because the man wouldn't quit knocking. The whole point of the story is to keep on going, to keep on knocking, keep on asking, keep on seeking. Over and over and over again, Jesus says it. In, in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, we, we've read this. We know this verse. And, and it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and, the one who knocks for, for the, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, what we don't catch in that is the way that's translated. I really think New Living Translation just does a fantastic uh, translation of this passage. This is what it says in the New Living Translation. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who, asks, who knocks the door will be open. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. There is a way in which I think that this, that this modern teaching that we have and this emphasis on faith, now part of it has been excellent. But part of it also, though this part where it says, oh, you just, you, you got to have enough faith where you just pray once and then and you, you don't demonstrate lack of faith by praying again. That is desperately counterproductive. The, the, this emphasis on faith misplaced has actually hurt people's prayer, prayer lives. I, I think people have gotten the idea that if, if they ever go to God twice about anything, that they're out of God's will. When we know very clearly from Scripture, he says, keep praying. Keep seeking, keep knocking. Whereas, you know, the truth is the people in the Bible who seem to get blessings from God are the people who are like this man. They're, they're like the unru like unruly children. They're, they just say, I am not letting go until I have this blessing. Like you remember, uh, uh, wasn't it Jacob wrestling the angel? He said, no, no I'm not going to let you go. I'm just catching hold of the hem of your garment and you're just not going to get rid of me. I'm here. Nothing you can do about it. I'm not going to go away until I have an answer from you, Lord. You remember the story of the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus? It's another Gentile. She, she's not Jewish. She's Syrophoenician. And she comes to Jesus and she begs Jesus. You remember this story. She begs Jesus to set her daughter free from demon possession. And Jesus tells her no, but he, he doesn't just tell her no. He humiliates her. It's one of the hardest things to ever come out of the mouth of the master. But this is what he, what, what he said to her in response. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He, he said, I, I, I shouldn't throw this out to dogs, meaning her. That's the word that was used at that time to refer to Gentiles. And he's saying, shall I take the bread of the kingdom from the mouths of the Jews and give it to a Gentile dog? Shall I serve you when the children won't eat? 
Well, you know what? She doesn't bow her back up and swell up with pride and indignation and go away rejected. You know, she would, she is the opposite of, of today's cancel culture. You know, today everybody, everybody gets offended at every little thing, but she's like, she didn't take offense. She didn't, she just didn't bat an eye. She just said, she answered, it says in verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She didn't go, you call me a dog? Who you, you, I, listen, there are rabbis coming out of the trees in the forest. I'm going to find another rabbi. I don't need you anymore. She didn't do that. She knew Jesus was the one who had the answer. But she wasn't offended by him. She, she just said, listen, all right, I'm a dog. Call me a dog if you want. Fine, great. Don't, don't take the food from the children. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But when children eat, crumbs fall to the ground. And if you have kids and you go to a restaurant, you know that there's a lot of food on the ground by the time you leave. She just said, listen, I, I don't care if you call me a dog. I'll be, the, I'll be a crumb dog. Don't take the food from your children. I'll be the crumb dog. I'll just crawl around, crawl around under your feet and I'll eat the crumbs. And Jesus heard that as he was testing her this whole time. He said, oh, I like this girl. I like this. That's the way I see this Roman centurion catching hold on the horns of the altar, as it were, and saying, I need a miracle. He's beseeching Jesus. Another thing I want you to see is that this centurion came with the boldness that's born of desperation. Maybe, now, I may shock you with this, but, but listen to this. He had, perhaps, I would say even probably, already made sacrifices and prayers to other gods. He was a Roman, uh, remember that? And, and, and he was a pagan. He probably had already offered sacrifices to Roman gods. He may have even become completely disillusioned with the state religion, which was the worship of the Caesars. He had probably forgotten about prayers that he had offered and beasts that he had slaughtered to Roman gods. But now he is desperate. How many times have my prayers been answered when I was absolutely desperate? When, when I tried every other idiotic thing in the world, and then I would say to myself, li li listen to this, listen to this idiotic thing. Have any of, you, any of you ever said this? Well, I guess the only thing we can do now is pray. <laughs> have you ever said that? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. But, but isn't that the stupidest thing in the world that a Christian can say? Really, I mean, prayer is the most powerful force in the entire world. It has the power to move mountains. And we say, well, I, I've tried everything else. I guess all we can do is pray. And God says, yes. I hear God saying, well, finally. I just picture him up in heaven saying, it's about time. I think sometimes God actually, and you, you may not like this, but I really do believe this. I believe that sometimes God actually frustrates our natural efforts so, so that we will have to depend on supernatural efforts. Someone once said, why, why are there so many miracles on the mission field? You know, I mean, when you go on a missions trip, especially to poor third world countries, you know, you, you will see miracles on nearly every missions trip that you go on and people see that and and they ask why are there so many miracles on the mission field when we don't see them so much in our churches at home well the the answer i believe is because 
when you're 75 miles out into the middle of a desert and there's no doctor for 250 miles, and even if you had a, a, a doctor, even if you could find a doctor nearby, he, he doesn't have any medication. And, and, if he, and if he was there, if he did, he wouldn't know what to do with if he had the medicine. When you're in that place, a miracle is all you have. You, you have to have a miracle. That's, there's a way you just have to have a miracle. However, in America, there are so many answers that we have to almost go through all of them sometimes before we realize the power of prayer. I've told the story before, and I know you get tired of hearing the same stories, but they're the only ones I know, so I have to say them. To, but I've told the story before about the uh, man uh, from, uh, I'm trying to remember now, it was an African nation. I don't remember if it was Nigeria. I think it was Nigeria. It might have been Ethiopia. But... Uh, but he was on a missions trip and he had joined a group of Americans on this mission trip in the nation of India. And anytime you go on a missions trip, there's always something that goes wrong. There's always something that, that doesn't happen the way you expect. And there's extra expenses. There's things that you have to do and, you know, think of obstacles to overcome. It always happens. It's just part of the part of the process because because you just can't know what's going to take place. You can't prepare for every every situation. But every time one of those things would happen, uh, this man would look at this other, this team of American Christians, and he'd say, he'd say in, uh, uh, we'll just say he was Ethiopian. Is I can't remember for sure, but he said, well, in Ethiopia, uh, we don't have Tylenol. Sudan, that's where he was from. He was from Sudan. He said, uh, he said in Sudan, we don't have Tylenol. And and people were so confused. These Americans were like, they're you know they're they they were they're too, you know prideful to ask him what he's talking about because they're like, I don't want to look stupid. You ask him. No, I'm not going to ask him. But every time he said that, they walk away and say, what is he, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, we're, we're trying to figure out how to, how to get across this river. And he says, in Sudan, we don't have any, any Tylenol. <laughs> it's like, what is, well, here's what he was talking about. He was saying, you know what, in Sudan, in the poor country there, he said, when somebody gets a headache, we don't have any Tylenol. All, all we have is our prayers. His point was that, that, that we got to pray, that there's power in prayer. And see, in America, we got Tylenol and we got doctors and we got all these other options. And sometimes, you know, we have to, it seems like we have to work through all of these other answers before we realize the power of pray. now, prayer. Now, that is not to say that those answers are bad. I'm not saying it's bad to take Tylenol. I'm not saying it's bad to go to the doctor. It's not to say that those answers are contrary to faith. But it is to say that we can learn from this centurion that if we would pray as desperately before we, we tried all those other things, we might get more answers to prayer. We also see in this centurion his, his direct access to, to, to Jesus in prayer. The centurion went straight to Jesus. He didn't go to the disciples. He didn't, he didn't go to Peter's house and knock on the door. He didn't go to the synagogue. He didn't go to the rabbis that were in the synagogue. He went straight to Jesus. I mean, what an amazing thing. It's an insight in which even now modern Christians, after 2,000 years of gospel preaching and the full counsel of the word of God, still often do not get. Now, now I, want to say, I want to say this in all gentleness. Don't, don't take any offense of this. Uh, uh, I don't want this to come out the wrong way. But I never 
mind. It doesn't bother me at all when anyone says to me, please pray for me about such and such. I'm your pastor and I want to pray for you. So that's not what I'm talking about. So don't take offense to what I'm going to say. But here's, here's the thing. I, I do think that a great many Christians remain less mature than they might be by expecting religious leaders to do their praying for them. I, I just want to say this, that the matter of reaching the heart of God with our petitions is not about superstars. People can say, oh, if I can just get there, if I can get into that, that place, if that guy will just pray for me, if I can just get to this meeting, then, then I'll get my miracle. However, you, you have to understand that there, that there is no one in this world that has a hotline to heaven that, that other people don't have. There is no red phone to God that somebody else has. You have as clear an access to God through the name of Jesus and by faith in the name of Jesus as anybody in this world. This Roman centurion went straight to Jesus. The next thing we see about prayer is that the centurion appealed to Christ's compassion. He, he appealed based on Jesus' compassion. He just told the situation as it was, hoping to touch the heart of God. Now, now I'm going to say something here. You know, we, we try to think up all kinds of reasons in the world to try to convince God to answer our prayers. You know, take, take praying for healing, for example. We, we try to get, get God to answer our prayers for healing uh, based on all kinds of appeals in, in the world. Uh, you know, and sometimes we even, we even try to m manipulate God in, into the blessing that we want. You know, you, you hear people pray for healing, and I've heard people pray, and they say something like, Well, I, God, I would not ask you to heal me for me, but I have three children, and if you don't heal me, the children will suffer. Almost like, oh, well, God, you know, you better do this because obviously I, ha I have to take care of these kids. You can't do it, but I, so I've got to do it, right? It's as if to say God, you know, doesn't love and, and care about me, so I'll appeal to him based on the potential suffering of my children. However, this centurion realized that Jesus cares even about a slave. He reaches right straight to the compassionate heart of, of Jesus based on what? Based on need. It is so uncomplicated. It is so simple. One of the greatest ways that we can appeal to God for a miracle in healing is just simply to say, God, I need a, I need a miracle of healing. God, I need one. Lord, he needs one. This, this woman is sick. Lord, we need healing. We need a miracle. You know, there are um, atheistic, lost, pagan physicians who have, a, 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 I believe, a greater tenderness and compassion for the sick and for the hurting than some of the legalistic Christians that I've, that I've met. Many, many Christians are, are far more interested in reinforcing their theological interpretations of healing than they are in actually seeing sick people get well. But God is not in the business of reinforcing my theology. He does care about hurting people, though. He does care about sick people. And I just want you to hear me. It is perfectly okay 
to appeal to God for a miracle just because one is needed. It's okay. I mean, it's, it's so simple. But, but we, we tend to just think of all kinds of ways to talk God, God out of a miracle. So, last thing I want to look at. The, the centurion also teaches us something about faith. So, he teaches about prayer, but he teaches us about faith. Look at verses 6 through 9. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he, speaking of Jesus, said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under, under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I want you to see this. This is the part maybe that blows my mind about this man and this uh, story and this situation more than anything else. His appeal to Jesus is grounded on a full recognition of the lordship of Jesus. Not just on his messianic glory. He's not appealing to Jesus only as Messiah or as the Savior. He calls him Lord. This is, this is amazing. And this is why it is so marvelous to Jesus. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can see this or not, but think about it. This is a godless, pagan, Roman centurion in a foreign country who sees a human being, a wandering rabbi who looks just like himself, except with less power and more pitiful clothing, and he calls him Lord. It, it, it is, is a shocking passage of Scripture, actually. His faith is grounded on the lordship of Jesus, not just on his messiahship or his, or his uh, status as a savior. I mean, if you'll notice, we can see this because look at his analogy about, about uh, speaking to his soldiers. He says, I give my soldiers orders and they obey them. In this life, in this natural order, he says, I am a Roman centurion, which means, means that he is in command of 100 Soldiers, that's where centurion comes from. It comes from century or 100 or the root of cent. So yeah, I'm a Roman centurion. I have 100 soldiers under me. I give the word and they obey me because my authority is of the kingdom of Caesar. And in this natural realm, uh, that's my, where my authority is and they carry out my orders here. So what, what does it mean here? What he's saying is, that he believes that Jesus is the Lord of a supernatural kingdom in which Jesus can speak the word and the word will be executed through the supernatural order. In the same way that the centurion's word is, is executed through the force of soldiers in the natural order. I mean, this is absolutely astonishing. It's astonishing that this man could, could grasp this at this point. This is early in Jesus' ministry. You know, there are people who have grown up in church all their lives who have heard the finest gospel preachers in the world and still do not understand the corollary between the two realms. Natural authority is in the natural realm. Super, supernatural authority is in the supernatural realm. And the access to it is through faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, wow, where did this guy get this? I mean, it, the gun has not sounded yet, and, his, and this sooner is already staking his claim on the, on the kingdom. 
He's in there stacking up markers on the corners of his 40 acres and the rest of us are still sitting in our wagons waiting for the gun. We see in this marvelous faith. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Now, do you understand why Jesus marveled? Because he said, this guy, he sees and understands that I have supernatural authority in the supernatural realm and that at my word, I can, things, can, things can happen. Miracles can, can take place. I mean, it says he was just amazed by this. I mean, he amazed Jesus. You know, we sing amazing grace. Jesus is saying that's amazing faith. But here's what I want to say. I want to bring this out. And this is where I want to lead to a closing. This man did this just sort of out of the blue. But we know who Jesus is. Don't we? We know who Jesus is. We know what he has accomplished. We know that he died and he rose again on the third day. We know that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. We know that he has, uh, that he has been given all authority. We know that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that he is the one who holds the universe together. Ephesians tells us that. We know that, that, that all things were created by him and through him and for him. We know who he is and we know what he has done be, we know all of these things. Therefore, how much easier should it be for us to have this kind of amazing faith in Christ because we know how amazing he is? How much easier should it for, be for us to have this kind of faith than it was for the centurion? We should not hesitate to come before Jesus and ask. Shouldn't even be a, a, a hesitation. When we need a miracle, we should ask for a miracle. When we need a healing, we should ask for a healing. When we, when we need provision, we should, we should ask for provision. When we need strength, we should ask for supernatural strength. When we need peace, we should ask for the peace of God that goes beyond human comprehension to guard our hearts and our minds. When we need anything, we should ask our compassionate Lord, because we know not only is he capable, but we know how much he loves us. Now, I want to say this. That is not to say that he will automatically give us everything we ask for just because we ask boldly. Now, that, that would, he would not be a good father if he did that. You know, I, did not, I, I still don't give my daughters everything they ask for. My oldest daughter doesn't ask for much anymore because she can afford more than I can afford anyway. So that's just the reality of life now. But, but you know, when they were growing up, I didn't give my daughters everything they asked for because not everything they asked for was something that they needed at the moment. And even if it was something that was not bad for them, it maybe it wasn't right for them at the time. Like I've used the illustration, my youngest daughter, when she was, when she was just little, like two, uh, we, we lived in a parsonage in, in Reno, Nevada, and there was this little driveway thing that, would, that went from the church, uh, from the parsonage down to the church and on a lower level. And oftentimes we, I'd put them on, our, on my lap and we'd drive down to the church and they'd grab hold of the steering wheel and they thought they were driving. You know, it was, it was, it was, we didn't go out on the street, so we didn't, you know, don't worry, there was no traffic or anything. But I can remember later on when we were going someplace else, we got in the car and I remember my youngest daughter was very upset with me. She was throwing a fit. She was very angry because she wanted to drive. Well, guess what? I told her no. 
I know it's shocking. I'm such a bad dad. I'm such an evil guy. Because, but here's the thing. I didn't tell her no forever. She's driving now. So be forewarned. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. She's a great driver. She's driving now. Uh, so when I told her no, it isn't, wasn't forever. It wasn't that driving is a bad thing. It wasn't that driving was evil. It's that you're not ready for this. So God being a good father, he's not going to give us everything we want. Sometimes what we ask for is bad for us. Sometimes what we ask for would destroy us. You know, a lot of us, we, if we prayed for riches, if God gave us riches, we don't know how to handle wealth and the wealth would destroy us because we'd begin relying on our wealth instead of relying on God. And so sometimes he says no because it'll destroy us. Sometimes he says no because we're asking for something that, that really is just evil. It's just not something that's good for us at all. Sometimes he says no because we're not ready for it. But, but just because we ask boldly and with confidence doesn't mean he's going to automatically give us anything that we want. Because often we think we know what's good for us. But we lack wisdom and we lack insight and we lack foreknowledge and we cannot see the ultimate consequences of receiving that for which we are asking. However, in his perfect knowledge, in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect insight, he gives us those things that will help us become more like Christ and those things that will bring glory to God. So that, those are the two priorities in his life. I mean, in his, for, for him in our lives. His priority is to make me like Christ because the shaping of my character is an eternal issue. My, he's trying to make me into a, a develop my character for eternity with him. All of the temporary things here are, are just that. They're temporary. He often answers those prayers. But those are, those are a smaller priority because that is temporary, not eternal. So his, his goal in my life is to create Christ-like character, to make me like Jesus to make me loving and patient and kind and all of the fruit of the Spirit. And the, but his ultimate goal, even greater than that, is to bring glory to his name. And so that's how he answers a prayer for us. And, and, and so he doesn't give us everything that we want simply because we ask for it boldly. However, don't forget that he is pleased when his children come to, to him and, they, and, he asks, and we ask boldly. That thrills his heart. Because for one, it's, it's, it's an expression of faith and trust in him. And two, it tells us, it tells him how much we love him and that we are not afraid to come into his presence. And it, it, we, we, he is pleased when we come and we boldly ask while trusting him to make a decision that will result in our ultimate good and the glory of God. We don't need, hear me this, we don't need to come into the presence of God and try to trick him or manipulate him into giving us whatever we want. I mean, how foolish is that? Who, how arrogant do you have to be to think you can somehow manipulate God? I mean, that's just, that's just foolish. I, I, how foolish, how, how arrogant is, is, uh, is it to think that you can somehow run a con game on God? You know? But, but I want you to know, we don't have to walk on eggshells when we come into his presence. We don't have to tiptoe into the presence of God. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, if you look in the context there, the reason we can do that is because of the work of our great high priest. 
That's why we can come boldly into the presence of God. We can come with boldness. Not because, not because we're all that in a bag of chips. You know, not because the Lord is so lucky to have us on His side. Not because I'm inherently worthy on my own of entering into His presence. But simply because we know who Jesus is. We know that He is the great high priest who has gone before us into that holy place, into the very holy of holies. And He's gone before us and He's made a way. He's opened a door for us to be able to approach the Father. We know that our sins are forgiven. And that's what separates us from God. But it's the Sins are forgiven. We know that we have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We know that we've been adopted into the family of God as children of the Father and co-heirs with Christ. We know what Jesus has done for us. Therefore, knowing Him and knowing what He has done, knowing our great high priest, therefore we come boldly before the throne of God with the name of Jesus on our lips. And we come without fear. And the reason we come without fear is because no judgment remains for those who are in Christ who have received what he has done for us. That's exactly what John was talking about when he wrote this. Part of this, we've often heard the part where he says, uh, perfect love casts out fear. But listen to the whole thing. In this way, God's love is perfected in us so that we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. That is talking about the fact that because of what Christ has done, we can come boldly in His presence with no fear of judgment. That perfect love of Christ has cast out that fear. That's what Paul was talking about. Famous verse, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation means there's no fear of condemnation. Since we know this great high priest, since we know this wonderful Savior, since we know the one who paid the price for our sins and made a way for us to to be able to restore our relationship with God, since we know He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, since we know that He loves us with an everlasting love, let us come boldly before the throne of grace and ask. Ask. Sometimes we don't see answers to prayer because we don't offer the prayer. We think somehow God's just going to do it magically and we think He ought to, but listen. Here's the problem. If he met our needs without any prayer, I guarantee this is what would happen. We would take it, take it for granted every time. We would not recognize the hand of God. We would mark it up to fate. We'd say, oh, that was nice. What a great coincidence. But when we pray, as he told us to pray, when we pray, when we come boldly and we ask, because we trust him, because Jesus has given us that access. And then he answers. Now we can see clearly and give glory to God. We say, I, that is exactly what I was praying about. God has answered my prayer. He has answered my prayer. And listen, sometimes, sometimes I think we're, we're afraid to pray because we're afraid, well, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't get answered, you know, then i got to protect God's reputation. You know, we don't pray for people. We don't pray with people because we're like, 
well, what if I pray for healing and they don't get healed? And I mean, that might turn them away from God. Well, first of all, let me just say this. God is perfectly capable of, of, uh, of maintaining his own reputation. He doesn't need your help. Um, but he doesn't say for us to worry about the outcome. He just tells us, pray, ask boldly, come into my presence without fear. Ask, cast your care upon me. It's what he says to do. I remember I was just thinking about a little while back, several months ago, a friend of Aaron's from work was going out of town and she needed somebody to keep her dog. Well, her dog was a rescue dog and was very, very skittish around other people and wouldn't, wouldn't let anybody uh, but, but the owner, this friend of Aaron's, really get within, uh, within even 20 feet of, 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 of her. And uh, so anyway, she needed somebody to watch this dog. And so we did the dog sitting for a week. Well, the thing was, this dog ended up in this home, this backyard that, that she didn't know. It was all new, all brand new. Everything was new. She was already very, very skittish. And uh, when we would go out to the back door, she'd go hide behind the bushes at the back of the yard. Well, well, what I didn't know was that there was a little spot in the fence that had a little hole in it. And this dog got loose the first day. The first day we had the dog. And, and now we're like, we're out there trying to find it. We saw it at, when we were searching. We were, uh, saw the dog out there a couple times. But how do you catch a dog that won't let you get within 20 feet of it? And so, you know, we were out there and we were trying to figure out something to do. And we couldn't get her back. And, and so that night we went to bed. But before we went to bed... I just prayed a simple prayer. And I, and I was honestly, I'm just going to tell you, here I am, this great man of faith. I was afraid to pray it out loud because I was afraid what would happen if it didn't get answered. But I just prayed a simple prayer. And I said, Lord, show my daughters what you can do. Would you just bring that dog right back into the backyard? That's a pretty specific prayer. I remember praying that prayer and I went to bed that night and uh, the next morning, Julie was taking, uh, Aaron, uh, taking Gail to school and, and uh, Aaron was already at work and she texted me as she left. She said, oh, the dog was out. I saw the dogs not too far from the, from the gate and, and the Lord spoke to me. I was laying in bed when I got that text and he spoke to me and he said, he said, wait a minute. He said, you asked me to bring the dog into the backyard. How am I supposed to do that if you don't open the gate for the dog? <laughs> and so I got up and in my pajamas, I went out and opened the gate. And I went in and got ready, got showered, got cleaned up. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go check. And I, and I went outside and went to, the, to that back gate to check. And I, I, I got to the gate and looked inside, and lo and behold, there was the dog in the backyard. I just said, Lord, you, you can do all things. Bring that dog back in here. And you say, well, that's a silly little thing. Well, yeah, it wasn't to us. Because we were like, how are we going to explain to this girl that you trusted us with this animal that you love? And the very first night, we, we lost her, and we don't know where she is. Sorry. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> You know, but, but it was more than that. I wanted my daughters to, to see 
and answer to prayer, a specific answer to prayer. And, and when we pray specific prayers boldly, and when God answers those prayers, then we're able to say, point at it and say, there is no way that's a coincidence. That's an answer that God sent to this prayer. So pray with confidence and pray trusting Jesus, knowing that he will, he'll give you those things that will shape you in his image and that will bring glory to his name. Let's learn from this centurion and approach our compassionate Savior and Lord with confidence, making our requests made known to him. I, I pray that as we think about this, that this will revolutionize our prayer lives. I pray that from this day forward, that you will never, ever even hesitate for a moment to come before the throne of grace with confidence and with boldness. Not insisting on a miracle saying, God, you have to do what I want you to do, but just asking God for divine intervention and the divine intervention of a God who loves us more than we could possibly understand, that has more compassion in his heart than we can begin to, to, to understand and trust him with it. Let's enter boldly before his throne and receive the help that he offers. Amen. Let's pray together. Father. I pray that we would do just that. Lord, we want to be people who pray boldly. We don't want to be people of presumption, but we do want to be people of faith. And I pray, God, that we would pray boldly and we'd say we would pray in a way that allows you to work to, and, and, and gives you the opportunity to bring glory to your name. And Lord, whether we're praying for ourselves or we're praying for other people, Lord, teach us to pray with confidence. Teach us to pray with this faith because we know who you are. And because we know what you've done, and therefore we have nothing to fear. And we know, God, that you're a good God and you will work miracles over and over again. Lord, help us to learn to turn to you even before we try all those other things. You may have us try those other things. But God, let it prayer be the thing that brackets everything in our lives. Teach us to live like this, Lord God. And we give you thanks for it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.